shout out to you, Eduardo Betrain, if you're uh, listening to the podcast. We miss uh, you. The best? Hey, Joe. Hey, Emily. The first. 15, that the lithium market was showing signs of, of movement. Um, a lot of people were talking about EVs and the potential of EVs. This was in early 2015. As many members of the lithium community know, I did a crowdfund for a short film that I wrote and directed. And even a little bit about our culture too. Like I feel that's an important element to be sharing with, with people outside the company. And, and yes, that is a deliberate strategy. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Today's episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is brought to you by Zalandes, a Brian Fields services company active in the lithium space. Zalandes aims to improve on ineffective geoscience technologies and techniques used in brine operations by providing more data, faster, and bringing actionable insights to their clients in hours rather than days. You can find them at www.zelandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z. Hey, Joe. Hey, Emily. You ready? Ready. Let's podcast. Let's podcast. Good morning and welcome to a rainy Santiago Morning Edition of the Global Lithium Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Emily Hirsch. And I'm the other co-host, Joe Lowry. And we are joined here in Santiago de Chile on our way to the airport with one Daniel Jimenez. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, the man, the legend, Daniel Jimenez. It's, it's, it's a little bit brisk this morning, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. It's cold. Joe, however, is like in a bikini over there. Yeah, I don't know what he has under his skin, but <laughs> it's cold here. It's, it's called cold. blubber. <laughs> <laughs> so, Daniel, we wanted to sit down and talk with you on the Global Lithium Podcast because you've been in the lithium industry for quite some time, since 1994, I believe, right? 1999. 1999. And we wanted to just get your perspective on Chile, Chile's role in the lithium industry historically and going forward, um, and essentially just your take on, on, on what you see as important, what you see as needing more attention, what you see as maybe something that gets too much attention. So We'll get into some details too, a little supply chain, a little qualification of lithium chemicals, some of the other things that many of our guests wouldn't be able to speak on with such alacrity as Daniel Jimenez. So without further ado, let's get into it. Daniel, we usually ask people a bit about their origin story because we are a very human podcast and we want to know who you are, where you came from, what makes you tick. So tell us about yourself, please. Well, I, I, I was born in Chile, uh, uh, raised as, as well here, went to school and university in Chile, and as soon as I finished uh, university, I went, uh, went to work for SQM at a time when lithium was not part of the, of the, of the products SQM was producing. Uh, production of lithium only started in 1996, and uh, that's when uh, when a little the world of lithium really changed. Uh, the the entr entrance of SQM 
really produced an enormous change in the the lithium structure in the industry. Joel lived that very well. I did. You were killing us. <laughs> Daniel, do you remember when you met Joe? I met Joe. Uh, actually, we, we, we met Joe. I met Joe, I think, the first time in 2016, probably. Yeah, yeah it, it was funny. I did yeah. not. I knew a lot of SQM guys yeah. starting in 97, but our paths didn't cross because I was in Asia. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, it hasn't been that long. Yeah, no, I, I knew Joe, of course, because of reference. But uh, we, <laughs> what was Joe's reputation? He he was a, a respected person on on in all, all sense. So no, I I, I can I, I know that. Yeah. Anyway, so so I started with SQM at that time. Uh, then I worked with SQM in the U.S. Later on in in Europe. From Europe, I had I had the opportunity to to see, to get to learn, to know the European market. At that time, the Asian market was also handled by us, with the exception of Japan. Uh, and to participate in in the introduction of lithium hydroxide. Tell in, tell me about that. It was that was tough. Uh, I remember we attended the first conferences uh, in Greece, presenting ourselves as future lithium hydroxide producers with at that time Chemital and FMC uh, being the market leaders. And uh, so they were, particularly FMC, Joe, they were very, very upset with, with the presentation I was, I was giving. Of course. Yeah. You were going to do the same thing you did in lithium carbonate, yeah. which was crash price. No. We no. weren't a fan. <laughs> we, we offered extraordinary product and very good service. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. Well, well, we'll keep the party line. All right. So. And, uh, yeah, and then uh, later on I moved back to, to the headquarters. After a while I got some global responsibility over the commercial activities of lithium and iodine. In between I had a break then for a few years where I had responsibilities over starting from procurement, uh, exploration, human resources, so all the back office of SQM. And then I got back to the, to the commercial with this responsibility over the global lithium and iodine sales. So that was until late last year. Wow. right in the thick of it then when the Corfo SQM Joe and Eduardo Bachan's Twitter feud that ended in peace what was going on from the standpoint of SQM when Chile made the decision to essentially try to bring more uh, downstream value added into the country when did that start I think, <clears throat> first of all, the core for the problem with core for internally and for all of us who were doing the work, uh, we we worked always in good faith. We we honestly think we didn't make any mistake. Uh, so for us, it internally it was uh, also we, we felt very badly treated, and fairly treated. Uh, the media media was very strong against us and really with no basis for it and it was more a political thing um, so so from that perspective uh, we suffered and I think also the, at the end of the day the country was affected with it because it slowed down the growth of the Chilean lithium industry and, and as a consequence of that we lost probably four years 
and uh, Chile was a, the leader in, in the lithium industry, and it lost its position to Australia. What's your What's your perspective on that? That you know, if you go back seven or eight years, people were thinking, you know, Brian is basically the Atacama, and whatever little old FMC is doing there on the other side of the on the, the Andes, and uh, you know. I think um, most people found it thought, you know what? The Atacama's got such a great cost position. It's such a large resource. You're not, it's it's almost uh, unthinkable that you would lose, suddenly lose your advantage. So what's your perspective on what drove that? I mean, it's, it's just, in my mind, you didn't lose your, your hegemony to... Australia, because they're still not making lithium chemicals. But in the press, for sure, everybody writes about the the downfall of Chile. And was that a self-inflicted wound uh, from the government side, or how do you think about it? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it was a self-inflicted wound. Um, we there was a, I think, wrong reading of of how the market was going to evolve. I think maybe eight years ago, nobody was foreseeing that the market was going to grow as fast as it did grow. Mm -hmm. uh, but but again, I think um, if the core for issue would have been solved quickly, if there would have been an issue, uh, Chile would, have, would be in another position today uh, and probably uh, probably uh, Australia, Australia-China connection wouldn't uh, wouldn't have the strong position they have today. So Chile will have to do a lot of catch-up, uh, and I hope that the lessons of this will also convince uh, the authorities and legislators legislators that uh, legislation in Chile has to change. That Chile has the potential to produce lithium not only the Salar Atacama, but with the current legal. Um, Framework. It is very difficult to invest in lithium uh, and to develop projects. Yeah, it's, it's one of actually those few things that it's actually easier to do in Argentina, right? <laughs> um, no, but going back to the Corfo issue, the the Corfo, besides the politics, there is not just in Argent, not just in Chile, but there's a desire for countries to try to add more value in country. Do you think that? that part of the motivation of Corfo's action, what, what are your thoughts on it? I think that is a wish every country, developing country has, and uh, it's understandable. Now, you also have to be realistic. And for th there's one reason why the cathode industry is developing so strongly in China, Japan, and Korea, and, for example, not yet in Europe or the U.S. And this is because the demand, the the next next part of the supply chain is sitting there and you need to be very close to them in order to develop a, a, a product that they use. Uh, and bringing that, that uh, know-how to, to, to Chile or to Argentina, which also has its intentions, is difficult. You're far away from the market. You would need to bring a lot of additional uh, other raw materials into the country to process here. So I think it's it's a, it's a tough challenge, uh, and economically, I don't know if that is sustainable. Uh, 
sustainable. Uh, it probably requires a lot of subsidies uh, if you if you want to do that. Well, I'm running down the road trying to loosen my load. I got seven women on my mind. Four that want to own me too. Another aspect of the, the Corfo deal was when they were finally both signed. Corfo at the time said, well, hey, now uh, the Atacama is going to go to 400,000 tons by 2025. And actually, when it was first quoted, it was SQM was going to go to 400,000 tons by 2025. And then Mr. Betrin re- kind of retracted that statement and said, no, he met, he met both. Shout out to you, Eduardo Betrin, if you're uh, listening to the podcast. We uh, miss you. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's your perspective on, you know, we've seen Albemarle struggle with Lenegra 2. We've seen the the SQM get off the expansion you know it's not not gone as quickly as as people thought so what's your perspective on the long-term ability i mean what kind of number can the atacama get to and how long will it take well first of all i don't know i've never heard about the 400 Uh, you have to keep in mind that the the permit sqm got was around 2.1 million tons to produce that amount of lithium carbonate equivalent over a period of 11 years or 12 years. Mm, with simple math, that would be probably 200, 250 max uh, per year. Now, in terms of the ability to produce that, um, I think SQM has uh, has a very good chance to, to reach uh, that, those numbers. And basically, because it has a very good understanding of, of the Solar Data Gamma. Uh, and, and that is a tremendous advantage uh, at, the, at the moment that you have to to decide uh, how to expand your production because I think from from that perspective uh, SQM has has most of the variables knows wh- what the variables to to work on are um, the challenges here from my perspective are more more related to a chemi- the chemical plant which there you need investments you need permits uh, you need time but that will eventually happen i'm, I'm quite confident about yeah so about let's just and the team. Re- retrench the statement i i think mr Betray may have been misquoted but it it was out there and he said you know 400,000 it makes more sense that it would be 4,000 to- 400,000 total mm-hmm. and it would be um, you doing two or SQM doing two fifty and maybe Abelmarl doing uh, one fifty or something along that line. So knowing what you know about your competitor in the or your former competitor in the Atacama and the struggles they've had thus far, do you think it's because the SQM side had a lot more hydrogeologists, a lot more expertise, a lot bigger volume that they were dealing with because they were making uh, a, another product that drove the you know the ability to make lithium. Um, so if you if you believe that ultimately SQM can get in the whether it's two hundred or two fifty, and you, you assume Abelmarl increases, so you, you you're over three hundred, and so maybe four hundred thousand is not not such a uh, out of the box target. Lofty. It's timing too, though. I I mean the the, the big question I had was how fast can that happen. Yeah, and how fast it can happen is relevant because the the agreement also has an end. So if you, if you expand too much your production, you need to pay off that investment in in a shorter period of time. So uh, no, but 
I, I think to to think of of those levels of four hundred, even three hundred, in on an aggregate, both producers seem today to me uh, high numbers. But uh, I honestly, I don't have yeah knowledge okay. to understand. To, to about we're just, we're just trying to frame the frame the argument in that if if Chile can get to three hundred or three fifty, then in 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 assuming Maracunga and the other assets aren't developed anytime soon. Uh, that's still, you know, that's thirty five percent share of a million ton market in twenty twenty five. So it's still significant. I have a question about sort of in the history of SQM when, and I'm going to botch this, but when lithium carbonate it used to be, it was a byproduct, right? Yes. And the primary product was potash. Potash, which is a fertilizer, right? Yeah. Okay. So. SQM's making potash, getting some lithium carbonate on the side. How, tell me about the like the the realization in the company and the shift to make you know SQM a lithium company, not a potash company with a lithium side business, I guess. Well, lithium indeed was a byproduct of of the original project project, which whose objective which objective for SQM was to produce potash. Uh, and uh, over the years, uh, lithium always was the third smaller business after the nitrates, potash, and iodine. And I would say probably around 2016, 15, 16, um, when prices started to increase, potash started to become a very important uh, contribution margin uh, business in, into SQM's portfolio. And that's when the company realized, look, uh, market is going to continue developing very strongly and we have to focus here and and yes today uh, there's a very strong focus on lithium but uh, iodine uh, as well as nitrates are complementary bis- uh, businesses and they all have a connection in between you have to think that potash is a, a raw material used in the production of potassium nitrate to produce nitrates it's a co-product with the production of iodine uh, so there's a Interconnection among all of these three of these businesses. So the ideal thing is that all, all, of, all of them grow at a uh, similar rate. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the hydroxide business with the uh, with the new royalty scheme, and if prices stay. Uh, above ten thousand, with the the fact that you ha- the the current process, you have to take the carbonate to make hydroxide. So your position on the cost curve uh, has changed somewhat. Or SQM's position on the cost curve has. But recently, we see that there's actually going to be a bigger expansion for hydroxide than was originally conceived. And you know, most people thought that all the big players were going to do hard rock and brine. SQM's got the project in Australia. So when you look at the hydroxide business, I guess two questions is one is how do you look at the expansion of hydroxide in Chile versus developing a a hard rock asset? And then just generally speaking, what's your thought on the hydroxide market in terms of the growth? Let's start with a second. So um, the hydroxide market growth, I think, what you have seen over the last month is that the hype, which was one year ago, 
uh, about hydroxide growing so much faster uh, than carbonate and therefore becoming as big as carbonate in a relatively uh, quick manner. I think those uh, those feelings are a little bit gone in the industry. Uh, it will grow, but probably not as fast. And I think cathode producers and battery manufacturers have realized technical technically it's not easy to produce this high nickel uh, cathodes and batteries. So, um, so I think that that also changes a little bit the perspective in the sense that that all of the production has to move quickly to hydroxide. Now, um, it is true that for brine producers, which start with lithium carbonate, uh, uh, to produce lithium hydroxide is an incremental cost. Uh, and then the question is, uh, will there be a, a price gap between carbonate and hydroxide that justifies to produce hydroxide starting from carbonate? And, um, and that seems... Uh, in my opinion, and likely my, my feeling is that long-term carbonate prices will m more or less equalize hydroxide prices because out of minerals, production yeah, costs I completely are agree essentially with that. the same. Yeah. So then a, with that, with that uh, condition uh, set, uh, you have to think, well, what would, would a, a brine producer do with the carbonate units? I, again... And this is my personal opinion. I think a uh, brine producer, if he's of a reasonable size, he cannot play only on a carbonate side, and he will have to play both both uh, areas. So he will probably have to produce lithium hydroxide, play on the hydroxides. Uh, Why? Because you don't want to have your business uh, completely uh, hedged into, into one of the products. Uh, you... You need to uh, you need to have flexibility. You need to have balance. Yeah, diversification. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and and this for a small player it's easier, but yeah. for a bigger player it is important to to have this risk distrib distribution. So can I just to get some an idea of of how much does it cost for a brine producer to build the capacity to turn some of that carbonate into hydroxide? Like what kind of capex? The opex is what like one. Thousand, two thousand dollars a ton, somewhere in that comfortable ballpark. Yeah, the 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 capex for for a conversion plant from carbonate to to hydroxide is is uh, is relatively low. How? What's relatively low? Yeah, probably around uh, four dollars a kilo, I would say. Okay. That's that's roughly four thousand dollars a ton. So. Um, but I'm, I, so is that capex or opex? That is That's capex. capex. So capex. how would that put that in terms? Yeah, if you're going to build a twenty thousand ton plant, it costs multiply it out. I mean, okay, that's that's what. Yeah. And so yeah. a twenty thousand ton plant is what would be normal. So that's two well, times I, four, I, I think in, in in the old days it wasn't because that was a big number. But in the future, you're probably going to build. I don't think you're going to build less than 10,000 ton hydroxide plants, and most okay. will be probably closer to 20, but that's my opinion. I mean, you, may, you may differ from that. Um, and then the OPEX on top of that, what's that what, do, what does that process consist of or entail? No, it's basically adding um, 
cost the sizing, yeah. Like roughly, is it about a thousand to two thousand dollars? Yeah, I a think ton? that that is a reasonable range to to consider, and that that is also more or less what historically has been the price gap used to be the price gap between carbonate and hydroxide when most of the hydroxide was produced out of carbonate. Mm-hmm. Well, our perspective on when 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 SQM went into the hydroxide business, it wasn't going to be margin additive. It was actually just to be able to put more LCEs into the market. So yeah. even, even if there was, I, I think initially probably a margin decrement, but it overall it was the right decision because you got more more product into the market. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And again, and there you had the same uh, decision to make yeah. of, of do I participate only in carbonate yeah. or do I also participate in hydroxide? And, and, and that's why I think that logic still remains when you when you think uh, in the future you'll have two big markets and if you have a, uh, you're a carbonate producer probably you want to also to participate in hydroxide This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is brought to you by Zolandes, a Bronfield services company that specializes in real-time technology services and solutions that improve customer performance. Low confidence data, lack of actionable insights, multi-day turnaround, sound familiar? Delays and budget runovers are a constant threat, and without that data, projects don't advance. Zalandes offers an exclusive borehole magnetic resonance service that characterizes the in-situ porosity and permeability of your mineral resource faster and more accurately than conventional methods. Zalandes brings a new way of doing things to the lithium brine space. To learn more, head to zalandes.com. We're, let's just say we, we covered carbonate, we covered hydroxide. Now, you know, let's talk a little bit about markets. Like, you know, you know we're, we've been at a lithium conference the last couple of days. You've seen a lot of numbers put out there. And, you know, my number is less than some people for demand. I, I'm still less than a million in 2025. But how do you view, just as a guy who's had deep relationships with the the market and with customers uh do you see how do you see the ev market unfolding and how do you see demand developing are you are you in a million ton camp or a eight hundred thousand ton camp or what do you what do you think i would like to be in the million two camp (laughs) okay (laughs) uh no but i am general very optimistic about uh, electromobility uh, I think that uh, that mass production will lead to a price decrease uh, at the cost decrease of, of, of uh, EVs. And, and from personal experience, I mean, as soon as an ICE car is, or electric vehicle is in a cost equivalent than an ICE, I will switch to, to, to EV. Uh, it's a wonderful driving experience. And 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 here we could see uh, that once that price equilibrium is reached, uh, we could probably see a very explosive de- demand growth for EVs. And it's difficult for to forecast. And you have the very pessimistic and the very optimistic, and it will be somewhere there. Now, million eight hundred million or million two. Um, I, I think the big challenge of, of the industry now is is to get to get the the supply of, of lithium into the market. 
considering that today the sentiment is is very bad. I mean, there's a, a sensation of of oversupply of and projections of oversupply for the next five years. But at the same time, so so investors are probably not very keen to invest. Um, and uh, but at the same time, money is the flow of money into the industry is stopping. So all this supply, which is supposed to come in, is is not being financed. So we'll probably see a delay in in, in much of that uh, investment, and not to speak about the difficulties of starting up a production uh, to get it ready on time, to have uh, production close to nameplate capacities in a reasonable period of time. So whatever uh, supply forecast you you can look at today, I'm quite convinced that it will be later than than what the supply forecast shows today. So bottom line, I see that um, we will have some probably a year or two of, of hard, hard times in the sense of a certain oversupply and prices under pressure. But also this could turn very quickly and, uh, and that turn could come uh, in a sudden, uh, depending on how quickly demand on EVs picks up. Yeah, I, I totally I agree with the the sudden change because uh, you know we had dinner with uh, Jing Wen Sun, the analyst from uh, China, the other night, and he follows the industry closely, and he's he's very connected. And I asked him what the average chemical inventory was in China, and he said about three days. And he said, you know, this is the typical China mindset of if prices going down, we don't want to be holding anything. But the problem is, is when it turns and there's a panic, like there was at the end of 15, like there was back in 2006 to 7. And, yeah, I, th- I think when it turns, it'll turn fast. I just am not smart enough to know, if, you know, what quarter that happens. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen before the end of next year. But who knows? Yeah. But it's also a good time to invest in lithium, I think. Exactly. Uh, and here, um, I think there will be good opportunities to, to acquire assets over the next year or two uh, at reasonable prices and with an upturn, uh, upside which could be very significant starting from year three, four, or four. So let, let me add. Let me ask you about your perspective on battery quality lithium. I don't use the term battery grade just because I think that's not nuanced enough. Um, Emily has her own term she uses, so we'll just call it battery quality for today's we exercise. Could call it battery ready. You know, you and I grew up in a world where battery, battery demand for most of the time we were uh, with our respective companies was less than half of uh, demand. And we're going to a world where it's probably 80, 85% of demand in 2025, which changes the degrees of freedom of what you can do if you're not producing all high-quality material. You've competed with the Chinese. You've competed with your ex-neighbor across the Atacama and the guys across the bumps, as Emily likes to say, which I call the spine of the Andes. So when you put everything into perspective, do you believe it's... You know, or we, or a Cobra is probably the best example of what I'm trying to get out here. They have a hard, they have a struggle to make any battery quality. So, how is that going to impact producers when battery demands 85 percent and you may be not producing a quality product? What changes have to happen in the industry to accommodate that? 
Yeah, when when producers would certain certainly need to to refine product. One way is simply to add another step into the process, which uh, technically can be done at an incremental cost, but not a significant cost. And the other way of refining, precisely for lithium carbonate producers, is to produce lithium hydroxide. So Odokobri has probably chosen that path of, of uh, converting its lithium carbonate uh, into lithium hydroxide, and, and that will be a battery-grade lithium hydroxide because in that process the, the refining takes place. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the required refinement of lithium carbonate, lower-grade 